You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. And we are on the evil inclination, finally, and I'm going to be talking today about one of the most prominent Second Temple uh, ways of dealing with the evil inclination, which is actually what I've seen as the most common modern approach to the evil inclination, at least among Orthodox Jews. And that is the one that we find in the book of Ben Sira. So let me again introduce my friend, Melissa. She's going to be asking me questions as they come up. Hello, everyone. And I'm glad to have her here with me. So let me just say a little bit about what we're going to be doing this time and also a little bit about the book of Ben Sira. Last time we talked about what Genesis has to say about the evil inclination, even though it's very different from the way we think of the evil inclination, it's simply the inclination of people. But this idea that the inclination of people is kind of naturally bad, naturally tends to evil or sin, was certainly uh, taken up in the Second Temple period. And as I mentioned in our last episode, this is at least in part a way to deal with the problem with this kind of subset of theodicy, which is theodicy is justifying God in the face of evil. But in this case, we're talking about if God made me and God doesn't want me to sin, then why in the world do I sin? So one of the classic evil inclination explanations is this is kind of what it means to be human. Humans have this tendency to sin. That's simply part of their makeup. Now, we're going to be talking about two people who lived during the Second Temple period who were very different from each other, but both of them were following the Jewish tradition, and both of them were dealing with this question. One of them is Ben Sira. He lived in Judea around 200 BCE, about 200 to 175 BCE. That would be during the Ptolemaic period in Judah. That's when Judah was ruled by Egypt. His book, which was written in Hebrew, was then translated by his grandson into Greek and became part of the Septuagint. Some of you may know the book by its name of Ecclesiasticus. It was called Ecclesiasticus because it was read in church, uh, which is actually interesting because the Talmud, while the Talmud quotes, not not often, but there is a citation of Pensira in the Talmud as an authoritative text. At the same time, this Talmud says you can't, and I shouldn't say at the same time, another place the Talmud says you're not allowed to read the book of Bensira. And what some modern commentators say is that what it means is that you can't read the book of Bensira as if it were part of the Hebrew Bible. In other words, you can't read it in the synagogue as part of the readings of the prophets, or even the readings of the writings on special occasions. It's not that level of book. So it's interesting that it gets the name Ecclesiasticus because it's being read in church. However, Bensira, as I just said, was considered fairly authoritative, at least by some uh, sages of the Talmud. It, in fact, if one comes from a Jewish rabbinic tradition, it's very easy to read Bensira and feel very comfortable with it. It fits in very nicely in kind of a development of thought between the Hebrew Bible and the Talmud. I'm not going to go into all the details, but it feels very comfortable if you're coming, if the first book you read of the Second Temple period is Bensira, and you're coming from a, a background of Mishnah, Talmud, even Midrash, you don't feel like, oh, this is something strange. Oh, this is a whole different approach. Ben Sira fits into that 
style of thought, even though, of course, he's not Talmudic, he's not Midrashic, he's doing something else. He's what we call wisdom literature, which is dealing with, it's, it's, it's more Proverbs. It's like Proverbs in the Bible, except that it, there are usually longer passages dealing with a certain topic. Now, I just want to be clear here that Ben Sira does not continue to be a real part of Jewish tradition and that he is before the Mishnah and the Talmud. So he's well within the Second Temple period. He writes between 195 BCE to 180 CE. And then his grandson translates the book, well, two generations later, essentially, because it's his grandson who translates the book into Greek. So this is a very early book. Remember that's that's around 200 BCE, and we can date it pretty accurately because his grandson, the grandson himself gives a date for the translation. And then while he is absolutely, he's cited by Chazal, by the rabbis of the Talmud, and in fact, there are also certain quotes that seem to be paraphrases of things that Ben Sira says. At the same time, at least one of the rabbis seems to consider him part of the writings, the Ketuvim. In general, he is not. So when the Hebrew Bible is copied over, it does not include Ben Sira. So most Jews are not reading Ben Sira. However, the fact that we have medieval copies of Ben Sira show that some Jews are. It's this very strange kind of in-between, but realize that in the Messorah of, let's say, Jews today, Ben Sira is not part of that tradition, in the traditional line of Jewish texts. And he's kind of been reclaimed more recently as more Second Temple texts are being reclaimed. And the question, of course, with Ben Sira, because he lives in the Ptolemaic period, is how much of Hellenistic philosophy is he aware of? We'll talk about what philosophical approaches Ben Sira was aware of or could have been dealing with in the next episode when we discuss Ben Sira 33. But for Ben Sira 15, the passage we're talking about today, there's no real philosophical approach that he is dealing with except the thought of blaming God for sins that he addresses directly. And of course, it's not a particularly philosophical approach. So again, Ben Sira, the book of Ben Sira also known in English as the book of Jesus, the son of Sirach, right? But he's not Jesus, right? That was his name. His name was Yeshua. The book of Ben Sirah was written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek by his grandson. Now, because it was translated into Greek so early, the Greek itself is worthy of study, particularly since the only reason we have it in Hebrew at all, and we do have a large piece of it in Hebrew, that was in two medieval copies that were found in the Cairo Gniza. So these are, on the one hand, they're in Hebrew. On the other hand, they're medieval copies. They're very late copies. So they have certain things that seem to be changes from the original text. And what we usually do is we simply compare the two Hebrew medieval copies with the Greek in the Septuagint. And again, the Greek version also in the Septuagint is much more complete than the medieval copies. The medieval copies do not include every verse. So we compare those to try and get to what the original Ben Sira was saying. And that's going to be very important in the passages we're going to deal with now. If you're interested in reading the passages along with me, I'm going to put a copy of the passages in Hebrew, Greek, and English, I hope. That will be available on the post page on my site 
understandingsin.com. So if you go to understandingsin.com, you go to the post, which has this, this episode of the podcast, and you will find attachments where you can download the source sheet for this. But I'll try and work on it slowly so that you can follow along with me, even if you don't have it in front of you. Where am I reading? I'm reading in Bensira chapter 15, verses 11 to 20. In chapter 15, Bensira directly addresses the evil inclination. So in this passage, that's, that's where Bensira actually grapples most directly with the problem of sin. Later on, if we have time in this episode, if not in the next episode, we're going to be talking about Bensira 33, which is another approach. But here he's really talking about the, the problem of sin, that, that subset of theodicy we've mentioned before. Theodicy, again, the justification of God. So in the beginning of the passage, I'm reading from 1511, Ben Sira presents a claim that he wishes to disprove. The claim that you can attribute your sins to God. This is what he says, and I'm reading the English. Do not say from God is my sin, for that which he hated, he did not make. Lest you say he caused me to stumble... For there is no need for wicked people, literally uh, men of violence, and Sheikh Hamas. Wickedness and abomination the Lord hates, and he will not let it befall those who fear him. Now, what is Ben Sear saying in this passage? And of course, the question is always when we have a, a do not say like this, the question is always, is this a real problem that people have? Is this a real claim that people are making? Or is this a straw man that he can use you know, as, as kind of a, a foil for his argument. I would say that there's a chance that there are people are saying this, or at least something like it. And when we talk about 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch, I we mentioned this earlier in the podcast episodes, but I'm going to come back to it in terms of the evil inclination. The idea that blaming Adam for sin comes up in 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch, it, it, it makes sense that people are looking for someone to blame for their sin. And this is, of course, the issue of, well, God made me sinful, so from God is my sin, okay? And he said, you can't say that because God doesn't make what he hates, so he didn't make you sin, okay? There is no need for wicked people, so therefore God could not have made you wicked. He said, lest you say he caused me to stumble, for there is no need for wicked people. And in the Hebrew, it's, ki en ban hamas. God hates wickedness and abomination, and he won't let it befall those who fear him. So you can't say that wickedness is from God, all right? So what's a little bit strange here is that we're going to see in the next passage, there isn't a really good solution. Bear with me, bear with me until we finish the whole section, and then you'll kind of see how Ben Sear brings it together, and it will be an argument that's pretty familiar to you, but it's worthwhile hearing it in depth. So the idea seems to be that Ben Sira is responding to a deterministic outlook that says somehow uh, my my sin has been determined by God or my sin comes from God or it could simply be a way of you know shirking responsibility. In his response, in Ben Sira's response, he's pointing directly to the whole problem underlying theodicy. He's saying God wouldn't make what he hates. And that kind of begs the question, well, if God wouldn't make what he hates and he made me, then why do I sin? So what is Ben Sears' answer going to be? Well, let's keep reading. And here we get into the problem of the different manuscripts and different sources of Ben Sira. I'm going to read the Septuagint first. I'll read an English translation of the Septuagint. So it says, it was he who from the beginning 
made humankind, and he left him in the hand of his diabulion, right? We're going to talk about that word in a bit. If you want to, you shall preserve the commandments, and to keep faith is a matter of goodwill, okay? So in other words, God made humans in the beginning, and he left humans in the hands of his diabulion. Okay, what's the diabulion? We'll see it in a second. It's a translation of Yetzer. Okay, Yetzer inclination. And then it says, but if you want to, you shall preserve the commandments. And to keep faith is a matter of goodwill. In other words, God gave you a diabulion, a Yetzer. If you want to, you can keep the commandments. In other words, it's up to you. Now, it isn't clear if we would just had the Greek... It wouldn't be 100% clear just because you're in the power of your Yetzer. That doesn't mean the Yetzer is bad. It could simply mean that you're in the power of whatever your inclination is of your character. Okay, this is kind of a Stoic idea, right? There's a Stoic idea that your character has a lot to do with what you end up doing. But what Ben Sir is saying here is, you have you it's up to you to keep the commandments god has in fact given you a diabulion a yetzel does he mean a bad yetzel or not we don't know yet however in the medieval hebrew version is pretty clear i'm going to read you the translation of the medieval hebrew version because the medieval hebrew version has an extra passage okay god from the beginning created humankind literally man and placed him in the hand of his snatcher placed him in the hand of his snatcher and placed him in the hand of his yetzer. In the hand of means in the power of. Okay, so I'm going, to repeat, I'm going to repeat it. God from the beginning created humankind. And he placed him in the hand of his snatcher and placed him in the hand or the power of his yetzer. If you wish... You will keep his commandment and understanding to do his will. If you believe in him, you too shall live. What's going on here? What seems to be going on here is that at some point, and I, I am obviously taking, I am adopting the approach, not everyone agrees. The question is, was this originally in the Hebrew and taken out in the Septuagint version? Or was it originally not in this? And then it was uh, put in at some point before the medieval version. Now, I agree with others, including, for example, Delella, who he's convincingly argued that this edition is actually a medieval retroversion of the Syriac, of Syriac 419b, and I will deliver him up to the hands of plunderers, which has a similar root. A Syriac is a kind of, a, an, it, you could call it a dialect of Aramaic. And we have a version of Ben Sira in the Syriac Bible, which is slightly different from what we have in, uh, just, just as every translation is different, it's different from the Hebrew and from the Greek. So it seems like someone wanted to kind of explain what a Yetzer was. You, you had God from the beginning created humankind and placed him in the hand of his Yetzer. And then the question is what we were just asking, which is, is this Yetzer good or bad? We don't know. What's the story with this Yetzer? So to kind of flesh it out a little, someone wrote and placed him in the hand of his snatcher, right? Chotvo, which is clearly or kind of a burglar, right? Which is clearly bad. In other words, God kind of set people up to fail, which seems to argue against the whole setup. The whole setup was 
that you can't blame your sin on God. Well, if God placed people in the hands of their snatcher, that kind of sounds like I can blame God if I mess up, right? And what it sounds seems like is that at some point, this additional passage was added. A lot of this is making sense, and I like the argument, but it seems to me that having wicked in our lives is necessary in order for us to develop our own character and grow and know how we react to things and, and figure out what we believe. It seems to me like it is somewhat necessary. Ah, so you, what you're talking about is evil. Is evil happening to a person? Or, and what Ben Sira is talking about here is the desire to sin. Okay, because I'm thinking, but a lot of, to me, the desire to sin. You know, there's peer pressure and watching other people and learning from them. And if nobody was sinning, then we would never figure out what we believed in, what our character Okay, so is. actually he is going to have kind of, there is an approach, and we're going to talk about it later, that everything has to kind of exist in pairs, right? That's a very Pythagorean idea, that everything has to exist in pairs. So evil and good has to exist in a pair. So a sinner and righteous have to exist in a pair. And we actually find that in Ben Zero 33, which we're going to get to later. But it looks like next episode, uh, we're going to get to Ben Zero 33. But here, that's not the approach he's taking. And, and it's good that you're bringing this up because we, um, particularly I think anyone who comes from religious tradition, has thought about this problem and has gotten to a solution that they're comfortable with usually, or a solution that kind of helps, lets, that, that they can live with. And I think it's interesting because a lot of times, and I've, I said this, I think, last episode, that whenever I say to someone who comes from an Orthodox Jewish tradition, and I say, well, this is what I studied, and this is what I wrote about, and then they'll say, like, I've never thought about this before. It, it's usually a guy who says this, actually. He'll say, but don't you know that, of course, the answer is that we have an evil inclination, but the choice is ours. Right. And that's that's what actually we're seeing in Ben Sira is we have an evil inclination, but the choice is ours. And that choice is going to become even clearer a little later in the passage. And that's a very frequent idea. And what you, the idea that you're presenting is actually a different one. Right. The idea that you're presenting is, but in order we need to have sin in order to be righteous, as it were, because in order to figure out what we believe in and what what we want to do and all these things, we have to have we have to deal with sin in some way and face it. Right. And face it. So that's an interesting idea. It's closer to the Pythagorean idea, but it's less, the idea that you're talking about is found much less, and it, it maybe it's closer to the idea of, of a nisayon, that you have to, that you're tested, right? And you're tested with things, and the idea is that you overcome it. We see that in the book of Judith, but besides the book of Judith, we don't see it a lot in these works. I think because you're seeing sin as almost a positive thing, and it's very hard for these writers to see sin as positive ever at That's all. That's true. Right. So uh, again, we'll see it kind of approached a little. And the Book of Judith does mention it as an idea that, that one can be tested. And of course, we have it in the Bible as well. But here, that's not, that's not what Ben Sira is talking about. So let's continue. Okay, so what was our setup? Our setup was Ben Sira starts saying, don't blame your sins on God. Then he says, God made people with a yetzer, or in Greek, a diabulion, right? And, but you can, if you wish, you can keep the commandments. And then in the medieval Hebrew version, we actually have not just that God gave someone a yetzel, but that God actually kind of placed him in the power, not just of his yetzel, but in the power of a snatcher, quote unquote. And that seems to be a way of dealing with this ambiguity of is the yetzel good or bad? But it messes up the whole philosophical argument that we're dealing with here. It's also, by the way, 
by calling the Yetzel, the inclination, a snatcher, we're getting closer to the later idea of the evil inclination as kind of an anthropomorphic, almost demonic figure, right? And that it's not medieval. We already have it in the Talmud, but that's a later idea that we get to, or at least a slightly later idea. We don't have that much of it in, in Second Temple, in Second Temple works. And then the passage continues. It continues to emphasize choice. If you wish, im if you wish, you will keep his commandment and understanding to do his will. Right? That's how the last section ended, or the last small passage. Then we have another addition that we did not have in the Greek. If you believe in him, you too shall live. And then we go back to what's in every manuscript. There are poured out before you fire and water to whichever you wish, tachpots, stretch forth your hands. Before each human are life and death. That which he desires, yachpots, shall be given to him. Again, there are poured out before you fire and water, to whichever you wish, stretch forth your hands. Before each human are life and death, that which he desires shall be given to him. What, what are the life and death that are before each human? Life, doing good, keeping God's commandments, death that's going to follow from sin. This is actually echoing the choice that's given in Deuteronomy 30. 19. So I'm now reading from Deuteronomy 3019. I am bringing as witness today the heavens and the earth, life and death I have put before you. Blessing and curse. And you should choose life. So that you and your descendants should live. In other words, what's the choice that God has put before the people of Israel? God has put, has given them his commandment, and now they have the choice between life and death. That almost sounds like he's saying that someone who sins is aware that they're going to die because of it. Right. Certainly in biblical thought, the consequence of sin is death. Now, obviously not quite. There are, there are you can bring sacrifices, but the idea is, you see this a lot, in Ezekiel, uh, in Yechezkel, that someone who sins is going to die. And Yechezkel says, but you can repent and then you won't die, right? And Yechezkel keeps on saying it. He keeps on saying, but then if you sin again, you're going to die, right? Because there's this idea that there is, in fact, an idea that sinning means death. Now, certainly, I think that by the Second Temple period, you don't have this as strong an idea. But certainly, in certain biblical texts, it's quite a strong idea. And I'll remind you that in certain, there's at least one biblical view, a view that you see of sin and its consequences in the Bible, which is that why is God merciful in that the consequences of sin are stretched out over multiple generations? Is that God doesn't punish one generation and kill it off, because that would be horrible. God stretches the punishment over generations so that everyone doesn't get killed off, right? That's in, uh, you know, the, the attributes of God that are, that are said to, to Moses, to Moshe. So if you sin, you need to be aware that generations after you will be punished. Well, look, certainly certainly in the verse where, where it says God's not going to cleanse the sin, he's going to carry it over over generations, right? Then that's what it means in that biblical verse. And then you have Yechezkel coming and saying, now remember that, and we're getting off on a little bit of a tangent, but it's an interesting one that I like to talk about. Jeremiah, Yermiyahu, 
says that he quotes both Jeremiah and Ezekiel quote a a well-known uh, phrase at the, in their time, right? That the previous generation ate, I guess, had like unripe grapes, and the next generation is the one that suffers from blunted teeth. And both of them quote the same passage, or not passage, the same um, adage. Yirmiyahu says, Yirmiyahu, and they're both quoting it regarding the, the present generation, the generation that was suffering through the destruction of the first temple and the exile was saying this. In other words, they were saying, Our, the previous generation sinned and we're paying for it. That was what they were saying. Yirmiyahu says, it's not going to be that way in the Messianic age. In the time to come, it won't be like that. You won't be able to say that. And Ezekiel, Yechezkel says, you can't say that now. Okay, so even between prophets, there are different attitudes to what does it mean when you sin? Is it actually, is the punishment carried off over future generations? Now, of course, in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, it says very clearly that human beings cannot punish the next generation for what this generation, you know, the, the human, human beings can never do something to a child because of what the parent has done. Okay. However, there is an idea that if sin causes death, and this and it makes sense, if sin causes death, and if you're in a mindset that sin causes actual damage, remember, we don't have, we have the idea of kapala, right? We have the idea of some kind of atonement for sins and how that works is kind of a cleansing of sins, right? That happens on, for example, on Yom Kippur. But the idea of a person repenting and therefore not suffering from the consequences of the sin, we find most clearly in Yechezkel, right? Where Yechezkel tells people, you can repent and then you won't die, right? And, and he expects them to not believe him. Now, in the Second Temple period, clearly we're in a different time. People believe in repentance and people are not thinking that they will automatically die because they sin, right? But certainly they feel comfortable echoing in kind of a literary way, echoing the verse in Deuteronomy and Devarim. So let's go back to what Ben Sira says. So Ben Sira is saying, they're poured out before you, fire and water, to whichever you wish, stretch forth your hands, before you, before each human are life and death, that which he desires, and using the same thing for wishes, that which he wishes shall be given to him. He uses the root chafetz three times in just three verses, okay? Uh, if you wish, you will keep his commandments, tachpotz. To whichever you wish, stretch forth your hands, tachpotz. Uh, that which he desires, yachpotz, shall be given to him. In other words, it's according to the wish of human beings. In the final analysis, this is your choice. God may have given you an inclination, okay? God may have given you an inclination. However, however, in the final analysis, this is your choice. It's your choice to do good or bad. Now, what does, what does Bensira actually mean by Yetzel? That That's kind of important for us to understand this. What does it mean that, you know, it's okay, fine and good. Uh, we have the choice, right? What does Bensira mean when he says Yetzel? Does he mean a good inclination, a bad inclination? Does he mean character? What does he mean? So we can look and see where else he uses Yetzel, the word Yetzel. So if I read in 27.6, okay, it says, according to the cultivation of the tree, so will the fruit be. So is the account or reckoning according to the individual's yetzel. Ken cheshbon al yetzel echad. Kind of weird Hebrew. The Greek is, it's 
fruit brings to light a tree's cultivation. So reasoning, logismos, that's how it's, you see, logismos instead of cheshbon. Logismos brings to light notions of a person's heart. Notions, uh, enthumimata, excuse my terrible, you, could you, maybe you could, uh, uh, pronounce it better. No? It's ancient stuff. <laughs> anyway, so the question is what's being brought to light? Okay. Ken cheshbon al echad is very hard to understand. So is the accounting on or according to the individuals yet so what is the accounting here what, what's the accounting is the accounting what the person does in the greek it's a little clearer it says reasoning reasoning the way the person i guess thinks will show what the actual thoughts are what his what his character is as it were i'm interpreting a little bit in terms of character because i'm saying I'm, I'm calling the notions of a person's heart character when, when they're not right it seems to be a, a, the notions of a person's heart is, is actually a pretty good translation of what we would normally think of as yetzel right the notions of a person's heart right especially since we have in the bible yetzel machshavot libo which is literally the inclination of the thoughts of the heart and certainly that's probably uh, influencing the greek translation here so if we say, if we say that account or reckoning is the way the person thinks, right? And that's according to the person's yetzel, what we might say is that the yetzel can be, uh, and given the fact that Ben Sir is almost certainly basing himself on the biblical verses, where if you recall, it, we need to hear that the yetzel is bad. In other words, yetzel has to be qualified as bad. The word yetzel itself is not inherently bad. And Ben Sirah doesn't say Yetzirah. He doesn't say it's a bad Yetzel. He says a person has been given into the power of his Yetzel. It makes sense that what he's saying is that in fact Yetzel denotes the human character. And therefore you can understand it from a person's thinking or accounting. You can understand their character. Okay. And in fact, we can learn a little bit about the use of Diabolion by Ben Sira's grandson to translate the word Yetzer in a different verse. And that's in 17, 1 to 8. Uh, and I'm reading here from the Septuagint. We don't have the Hebrew here. Deliberation, uh, diabulion, and a tongue and eyes, ears and a heart for thinking, he gave them. In other words, God gave to people. With knowledge of understanding, he filled them, and good things and bad, he showed them. So God gives diabulion to humans alongside tongues, eyes, ears, and a heart for thinking. Uh, this is actually the precursor to the gift of wisdom and knowledge, which follows. First, he gives them deliberation and a tongue and eyes, ears and a heart for thinking. All these things are things that you need in order to perceive and to think. And then with knowledge of understanding, he filled them and good things and bad, he showed them. So it's very possible that here again, Diabolion translates the term Yetzer in the Hebrew original. And it's the, this idea is bolstered by the reading in the Syriac version that God created mouth and tongue and eyes and ears for humans, which would reflect a reading of the verb yetzal formed instead of yetzel in the Hebrew. In other words, it says that God created mouth and tongue and eyes and ears and doesn't have a word for diabulion. And so what he probably read was he didn't read yetzel and then the others, he read yetzal, a mouth. He's read, read, they created them. So it makes sense that probably in the original Hebrew, there was yetzel. And here it seems to be being used for the capacity for thought. Diabulion, and, and if it translates Yetzel, is being given to humans along with all the uh, sensory organs in order to pave the way for thought. So that could be understood from the biblical use of Yetzel together with 
heart. Yetzel lev machshavot. In other words, that, that would be the, what what is just the capacity of the heart to think. So here, the yetzel, if again, if Tiabulion translates yetzel, then the yetzel is a positive term reflecting human abilities, and certainly not a negative term. So in that case, we can really read uh, what I would consider the original Ben Sira to be saying when he says in his in his in his passage in fifteen eleven to twenty, God gave, put man into the power of a certain character, a certain capacity for thinking, a certain way of thinking, but then what a person does with it is up to the person, right? And that's why what he wishes, the, the word for wishing or wanting or desiring is rep- repeated three times. It's up to the person and what the person decides to do and what the person wants, that is what's going to determine whether the person sins or not. So what have we seen in this, uh, in this kind of overview of Ben Sira, and why do we care? I probably should have started with why we care, but I think it's, uh, it's not bad to end with it either. First of all, we've seen this idea and this, this approach, which is still a popular approach today, which is that God may have given people the capacity to sin. Uh, people gave people a certain tendency of thinking a certain way, he may have given people their own character and their own personality. However, in the final analysis, people have free will. So in the final analysis, people's free will is what determines whether they decide to sin or to not, to do evil or to not do evil, or to do good. That is the solution that is given uh, by Ben Sira and, is, and makes sense within the, uh, the corpus of wisdom literature which is all about thinking. It's about thinking, considering what you do, acting in the correct and proper way. If you think of the book of Proverbs, there's an idea that if you act in the proper way, good things will happen to you. Well, not necessarily because Job is also considered part of wisdom literature. And of course, in Job, you can act in the proper way and not have good things happen to you through no fault of your own. But certainly in Ben Sira, and in fact, in other sections of Ben Sira, when he says, why is there evil in the world? Why are there bad things happening in the world? He's like, well, you need the bad things to punish wicked people. And then once the bad things are in the world to punish wicked people, well, then there are bad things in the world and other people get hurt. And at least one commentator has noted that Ben Sear sounds like someone who hasn't suffered real hardship in his life. Someone who has suffered real hardship in their life, that solution is not a really satisfying one. In fact, if I can say something, um, it, it's not a particularly empathetic one. So we're going to see different views of sin, and some are more personal and some are less personal, even when we talk about the evil inclination and not just demons. Uh, For Ben Sira, the idea does not seem to be particularly a personal one. It doesn't sound like it's something that he struggles with, at least not here. We'll talk next time. We'll touch on some things that are a little bit different with Ben Sira. And then we're going to be talking about Philo. Philo is a philosopher. Uh, he's an Alexandrian Jew. He's living in Egypt towards the very end of the Second Temple period. And he really is dealing with Platonic ideas. He's really dealing with philosophy. And he has a much more pessimistic view of human character. But first, we're going to talk a little bit more about what Ben Sira does. Now, again, why is this important? Because it forms a basis of a lot of our thinking today and continuous thinking in the kind of Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, this is a book that people were reading. And it was it's not just a book that people were reading, it really indicates a certain type of thought. 
So I think that this is a very important approach to sin. And it's also interesting to see what we're used to as being an explanation in an ancient book. Again, I'm going to go into some other explanations, which are slightly different. And I would also like to address something that Melissa brought up that you didn't hear. She asked whether a thinking in the heart is something standard. In, it is absolutely in biblical thought, thinking happens in the heart. Uh, thinking doesn't happen in the brain, right? Thinking happens in the heart. Heart, the heart is where things are considered and thought out. And the heart is where kind of your smarts sit, as it were. So everything happens in the heart. So if we talk about, you know, yetzel lev hadam, right? The yetzel the, the, the of the heart, that has to do with a person's thoughts, not just their feelings. And it doesn't have the emotional connotation that it has today, right? It doesn't have to, no. No, and because because thinking happens in the heart, so it's to say, oh, you're you're doing your thinking in your heart. People will be like, well, yeah, uh, sure. Where else would I think? Right? It's not a it's not an insult. And on that note, we're going to get even more cerebral next week, <laughs> our next episode, uh, when we talk about Ben Sira's dealing with uh, more Ptolemaic thought. That is, excuse me, Pythagorean thought. And when we inch towards Philo, who gets very philosophical. So before I say goodbye, I'd like to remind you to please comment on the site, understandingsin.com. Please comment on the post. I love hearing from you. And um, I love our discussions. So uh, let me know that you're listening. And I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.